you're seated, we come now to the preaching of God's Word, which is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, and there beginning at verse 11 through verse 19, as already read, and which recounts for us this narrative of the ten lepers who were healed by Christ. And to focus our attention, notice from verse 15 through 19, this singular case among the ten. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. The passage before us is full of the display of Christ's glory, such glory as he only possesses, both in the exercise of his compassion upon those who were in great misery, as well as in his power in so giving them health and restoration. And yet, in the midst of it, there is the focus upon this one leper, So we ought not to lose sight, of course, that central to it all is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His merciful power exercised toward those in need. And yet what gains our attention in the midst of that focus is Christ's word regarding this one who returns to Him. And so you'll notice the text itself, that Christ is going to Jerusalem And as he's going, he passes through the midst of Samaria. And of course, Samaria was a place of much compromise, religious compromise, ethical compromise. And it was something of a proverb to speak of those Samaritans who were considered not only, as it were, um, physically half-breeds, Gentiles, Jews brought together, but religiously, as it were, compromisers in the things of God. And yet, as he's entering into a village, you'll notice that there are ten men that were lepers. And we ought to take just a moment to remember leprosy, this tremendous illness, and still able to be found today, not nearly as prolific as it once was, but nonetheless, when it is found, it is quite debilitating, depending on the type that one contracts. But in that day, among Israel, of course, It was more than simply the medical issue it is in our day. Because to contract contract leprosy was to contract an illness that then separated you from everyone else. And so you can think of this on a number of levels. It separated you from your family. Think of this for a moment. You wake up tomorrow and you have a spot, a skin rash of some sort, and it starts to develop and it starts to mark out the signs of leprosy. Now, if you were living in this day and at this time among these people, that would mean you have to leave your home. You have to leave, if you're a wife, your husband, your children. If you're a husband, your wife, your children. If you're a young person, your family. You're put out of your home. But it's worse than that. As difficult as that would be, you would be put out of the assembly of the saints. You would be taken away from the ordinances of God. This, of course, 
is the more severe aspect of leprosy under the Old Covenant. And it's something that we have to uh, re-gauge in our own thoughts and recalibrate in our own thinking. We're not to underestimate the natural difficulty of being severed from family. That is, of course, of immense uh, uh, difficulty. But there's the additional of being severed from the ordinances of God. And so these ten lepers, which were forbidden from affiliating and being near unto those who were whole, were, of course, not forbidden from being with other lepers. And so that's why you find ten of them together. So they're not individually isolated. They're ten together as an isolated group. And now you'll notice in the text that Christ is entering in. They don't wait for Christ. They see Christ and they lift up their voices. Notice, they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so they're crying out for mercy. Christ then responds. And He doesn't just do what perhaps if we were ignorant of this passage we think He might do of saying, you're healed. But He actually sets them on a course by which they would be healed. Now it's instructive because, notice His words, go show yourselves unto the priests. And this of course would have elicited in them some confusion and yet some encouragement because the leper only went to the priest after he saw signs of healing. And so under the Old Testament, when, if indeed leprosy started to heal and was healed, they would then present themselves to the priest who would examine their bodies, seeing if indeed leprosy had been cleansed of them, and then they would be given the right of rejoining God's people. But Christ is telling them, go before you see the signs of healing, trusting my word, that that which you seek will be given. And of course, as they went, notice verse 14, they were cleansed. But you'll remember there were ten of them. And only one of them, seeing that he was healed, turned back. And so they're all going in a group to the priest. They're all cleansed. And but one of them remembers the one upon whom they called and goes back first to thank Christ. And this is what captures Christ's attention. Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? They are not found. There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. Notice the language, this stranger. So, of the others, it seems that the other nine perhaps were Jews, who should have known better, of course, but this stranger, this Samaritan, is the one who returns to give glory to God, and it's instructive. He gives glory to God, giving glory to Jesus Christ. Right? So there's some perspective there in this man. And then Jesus says, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. There seems to be in Christ's words some penetrating insight that helps us discern a difference between this man and the others. That all of them cried out of desperation, Heal us. But it seems that but one of them, this one cried not only out of desperation, but faith to Jesus Christ, trusting Him. And it's this which Christ commends and acknowledges that it is by faith that He was healed. And likewise, we can see that it is by faith being healed that He returns then to give thanks to the One upon whom He called. So we wish to look at this focus upon faith 
in the midst of trials and afflictions and sorrows and its activity, its exercise, and how it is different than others in trials, how it's similar in some ways, but what its unique features are as well. So firstly, consider faith's appeal to Christ. Secondly, faith's submission to Christ. And thirdly, faith's remembrance of Christ. So firstly then, what faith does in affliction is appeals to Christ. Now this is helpful for us. It's nothing, as it were, in and of itself unique to faith, though there is a unique feature, as we'll see. Well, before faith can appeal to Christ, there are a couple things that need to be understood. There is, perceived by this individual with the other nine, a due sense of their misery. There's a commentator on the passage who raises the question, why is there so little prayer today? Why is it often so formulaic today? And this was written over a hundred years ago. And the man answers, because there are so few who have a due sense of their weakness, of their sin, of their misery, of the testimony of their afflictions, how it testifies to them that they are but dust and fully dependent and contingent. And it raises a question for us in this sense, do we sense our own miseries? Now, of course, we can immediately go to the greatest misery of sin, but we can also see a link to the lesser miseries. So, for instance, why is it that we contract things like viruses or we get infections that lay us low? Well, we can trace that back to the opening of that curse because of sin. So, for instance, death itself is the consequence of sin. And all of those things that are associated with death are in existence today because of sin. Every misery we experience in this life is, in one way or another, the consequence of sin. Now, we don't mean that every misery we experience is directly related to a sin that we've committed, because in the Lord's providence and purpose, He may afflict one in order to test them. But the fact of affliction, the fact of suffering, the fact of illness, the fact of the death of loved ones, relational strife and turmoil, is all, as it were, linked back to the first sin. So when Adam sinned, he opened up a world of misery to all his descendants. So in other words, it's helpful for us to see this, that when we are laid low through some outward affliction, it is nonetheless a misery associated with the brokenness of a sinful and accursed world. And so when we see that, it actually will orient us to the primary focus of what we're to do in our miseries. We're to look to God in gracious prayer. And so, we can see this, of course, in this leper who cries out with the other nine, heal us, have mercy on us. We can see it, for instance, when parents come to Christ and say, have mercy on me, my son is afflicted, my daughter is dying, right? There is a propriety, in other words, when we understand that misery are, the, as it were, the streams that flow out of that first sin. So it's not only instinctive, but it is appropriate for us 
to cry out to God for His mercy. But we will not cry out to God for His mercy unless we see His mercy is the only way of answering our misery. And so it raises the question, do we have a due sense of our miseries? Now, I know some here and some degree of the miseries that some have, but I don't know all. And you will have your miseries, and you'll have, of course, natural means that you're to employ. If you're sick, you can take medicine, you need rest and nourishing food. If you have relational strife, you seek counseling and other such things. Spiritually, uh, all sorts of things are at our disposal. But we ought to see preeminently that when it is we have a due sense of our misery, we don't thrust ourselves upon the means in our own strength. When we sense our misery is more than we can handle, we look to God and we cry out for His help. Here it's leprosy and all of those uh, uh, related miseries that we've uh, discussed. Elsewhere it's blindness. Elsewhere it's afflicted children. Uh, Elsewhere it's the uh, paralyzed man. And yet, even as we saw earlier in Luke, when the man who comes and paralyzed, his greatest desire is the forgiveness of sins. Remember, he's lowered down in the midst and Christ says, your sins are forgiven you. And then the uproar comes, who is this that forgives sins? And Christ says, is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. He turns to the man and says, rise up, take your bed and walk. And he does so. What Christ is doing throughout the Gospel, throughout His ministry, is teaching us that the greatest misery you and I have is our sin. It doesn't undercut, it doesn't ignore all of the other miseries, but it does remind us that all the other miseries are but whispers of the greatest misery. And so what faith does is it gathers up a due sense of these things and says, as it were, I have no ability, no power. And even if I have the outward means that the Lord usually orders for good, yet accept the Lord blessed by His mercy, I have no hope. Because my misery is such that I cannot heal it. Others cannot heal it. It is God that is needed. But you'll notice that faith not only has a due sense of misery, but it discerns that there's mercy in Christ. You can have a due sense of your misery. And what will happen is you'll be paralyzed in hopelessness. In fact, there is in some sense more authenticity in the hopeless one, the drug addict that has no hope, the the one who is imprisoned in some lust and sinful course who has no hope, than the rest of the world who says it's not a big deal. The reason being, there's a truth that they've latched on to. However, it's out of proportion to something that's greater than the truth that they've acknowledged. And that is the mercy that is found in Christ Jesus. What is the cry that is given? It's Jesus, verse 13, Master, have mercy on us. The word mercy is associated with the word compassion. 
In fact, it's often misrepresented as merely the not giving to us what we deserve. But actually, the word biblically has far more of this notion of a disposition to show kindness. God, think of this for a moment. When Moses says, show me thy glory, God doesn't say, okay, I'll show you my glory. He says, listen, Moses, no one can see my face and live. I can't show you my glory if I would have you survive. But this is what I'll do. I'll put you, I'll cover you up, and I'll pass by, and I'll declare my name unto you. And what happens? Well, Exodus 34 then testifies that the Lord descends, He covers Moses, He passes by, and then He proclaims the name of the Lord, the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah God. And He gives this long list of merciful, gracious dispositions that are of God towards sinners. And this is what is discerned. Jesus, have mercy on us. Be compassionate, not just in general, but on us. Have mercy on us. If you stand in the sense of your miseries without discerning the kind disposition of God in Christ, you stand in a shackled reality, a prison of darkness, dank and putrefied, and you will be overwhelmed and overrun in your misery. But when it is that faith discerns, there's mercy in Christ Jesus. He is a merciful Master. Then it is that it directs hope to Him. It doesn't just say, oh, for mercy, but it personalizes it. Jesus, have mercy on us. Now, this is faith's appeal, and we can say this strictly and particularly of this one who indeed returned. Of the other nine, at the very least, we can say they were desperate. They knew that Christ had some power, and perhaps they had the faith, as theologians speak, of the faith of miracles. They knew that Christ could perform it, but they didn't have that saving faith which is uh, testified by Christ of this particular man. Whatever the case, we realize that men in desperate straits will cry out for help. There is what some have called foxhole faith. So when men in times of war are feeling the pressures of bullets whizzing overhead, all of a sudden people start crying out in religious terms that God would have mercy, often with profanity-laced tirades, and yet there's still an instinctive crying out to God. Perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps that's what the other nine have. But at the very least, we see with this man that it's not just a foxhole cry. It's not just the desperate straits of the feeling of difficulty. It's rather with that, the discerning of Christ and His mercy and power to save. Now, secondly, what does faith do? It submits to Christ. So Christ gives His Word. Here it is direction. He doesn't say to them, you're healed. But He puts them on the course that would find them healed. So He says, go, show yourselves unto the priest. As indicated already, this was something that usually wouldn't have been done until there was the evidence of healing. And so in the Old Testament, if a leper 
um, all of a sudden found that his leprosy was gone or that his leprosy had consumed his body head to toe, it was of such a type that he would be declared uh, healed and cleansed and able to return to life in uh, uh, the people of God and life in the home and so on. But here there's still lepers. And Christ says, you're to go now. Now, brethren, think of this for a moment. Because in your experience, if it's anything like mine and countless others, we often stumble at Christ's guidance. Much like Naaman did. Remember in 2 Kings 5. Naaman receives guidance from Elisha. And Naaman's looking at this and saying, listen, I was expecting something with a bit more flair. I was expecting something with a bit more drama. Not so simple and plain. You know, and in addition... Not only was I expecting the prophet to do some great and mighty feat, I hesitate to fulfill this because the dingy river in which he says I should be cleansed is far inferior to the rivers back home. And so I'm going home and I'm done with this nonsense. But if he had forsaken Elisha's word, Naaman never would have been healed. And so God be praised to his glory that there was a wise counselor with Naaman who said, listen, if the prophet had said, go and do this mighty feat, you would have done it. But he says, go and wash in this river. Go do it and be cleansed. Well, there's something there that is insightful to our inherent struggle. We often feel like, well, if Christ is going to answer my misery, it's going to be through some dramatic fashion. And in fairness... Sometimes there are dramatic things that happen. The Scriptures are not silent on that. But even in the dramatic features that the Scriptures highlight on occasion, they're exercised, or administered rather, when there's the exercise of faith. And so when they are less extraordinary, or ordinary, or simple means, the power is not in the means. This is the point. The power is not, as it were, through the extraordinary thing that's done or desired to be done. The power is in the blessing of Christ received by faith. And so, brethren, when Christ gives His Word, it's His Word we're to submit to. And in doing so, we're submitting to Christ. And so, for instance, when He says things like, listen, if you find yourself to be polluted with sin and guilty in conscience, here's what you're to do. You're to confess your sins and you're to trust that the one who confesses his sin, he hears and he pardons. If any man confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Oftentimes, is it not the struggle that the one who is convicted of sin says, But my sins are so wicked, something extraordinary must take place. What is the thing that I must accomplish? What is the thing that I must do? What is the additional feature? Oh Christ, if you're to forgive my sins, let me see an extraordinary flash in the heavens. If you're actually being merciful to me, cause something miraculous to take place right now. And Christ is no one's genie. Christ says, if you want what I offer, what I give, what I provide, it will be by the means that I provide them. And so when a sinner is struck by the due sense of his sin, 
though tempted to say, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to earn my way back. Rarely is it in such language. But often it's clothed in the apparent pious language of, well, now that I'm convicted and now that I'm sinful, what I'm going to do is I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to take this step and that step and the other step. And finally, God will be pleased with me. Brethren, that's to disregard Christ's way. What would have happened if these had not gone to the priest to present themselves? They wouldn't have been healed. They must go according to the means that Christ has appointed. You can see this in all manner of false religion. It doesn't matter whether it's Islam or Hinduism or Roman Catholicism or other such things. There are invented means that have the appearance of great piety. And so, as our brother has said, in visiting India, you can go uh, a mile and pass by shrine after shrine after shrine, and you'll see people doing all sorts of things, which is far beneath what they used to do in burning widows on uh, fires and so on, all of these wicked things that were done, the idolatry that's pervasive. And yet, one thing we have to grant is there is zeal in their idolatry. And if you were to pull them aside from the shrine and say, you know, are you doing this in a zeal for, the, for God? They would say, of course I am. You can see the Roman Catholic who prays their rosary every day and who goes and makes auricular confession to the priest at the appointed hours and observes all of the feasts and all of the fasts and abstains from this and that and the other. And you can ask them the question, are you doing this with a sincere zeal? And they would say without hesitation, of course I am. You could say the same to the Muslim who at all of the called hours of prayer are on their faces far more frequent than most Christians are, with far more humiliation than Christians are. And you could ask them after those appointed hours and say, are you in sincerity doing these things? And they would rise up and say, of course I am, many times with tears in their eyes. And yet here's the fundamental flaw. All of those things are without the appointment of Christ. And so all of them, whatever their zeal experienced, whatever their inward feeling and disposition, are outside of the way by which Christ has ordered mercy to be found. And so then we look at the Scriptures, and what do we find? Christ says, repent and believe the Gospel. And the world says, that's too simple It's too plain. It doesn't have all the flair and drama that we would have. So you have Pentecostals that knock people in the head and they fall back flailing. You have all of this nonsense of going around barking and speaking in so-called tongues and all of this stuff. And it has the flair for the dramatic. It has the excitement that uh, uh, scintillates our, our senses and all of this activity. But look again at the ways that Christ ministers His mercy. It's through His prescribed, His ordained way. This is why the church has identified the means of grace primarily to consist of the preaching and reading of His Word, prayer, and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why? Because we want to be ultra-simplistic? No. Because we want to be ultra-committed to the means that Christ has provided for the receiving of His mercy. This is why we're so zealous for these things, because they're the means whereby Christ communicates 
his blessing. And you can see that. He says, go, and they go. If Christ told us to go, we would go. If Christ told us to go up into a mountaintop, we would go to a mountaintop. If Christ told us to create shrines, we would do so. If Christ told us to put these artistic renditions of the stations of the cross around a building and every once in a while go and light a candle at them, we would do so. Because they would have then the warrant and the guidance and the authority of Christ. And thus, faith would be able to wait upon Christ in the means. But without that warrant, without that guidance, it's just, as Paul calls it in Colossians 2, will worship. It's worship devised by the will of man. And not only is that an affront to God, but here is what is a great misery. It is of no help and no avail to the miseries that engulf us. It is without any benefit whatsoever. But faith discerns the way of hope is the way of Christ's Word. And so faith submits to Christ. But you'll notice then, faith, saving faith, also remembers Christ. And you can see this with this particular man. It's difficult for us to comment much more on the other nine. It could be that they were immature. It could be that they were merely possessing the faith of miracles, the trust that he has the ability to do this. It could be a number of things. But as the Scriptures isolate this one who returns, so we focus on him. And you'll notice, one of them, when he saw, verse 15, that he was healed, he turned back with a loud voice, glorified God, and fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. Christ had blessed him in mercy. This is important for us to realize. You hear this this time of the year. Things like, you know, religious terms that are yanked out of context and put into commercialized uh, circles. And so you have things like only believe, and you'll see the decorative faith, and you'll see it on shopping bags and commercials. Indeed, you'll see these things like uh, commercials saying that believing is magical. All of that stuff, which sort of tugs at a string of sentimentality, is utterly worthless. Faith isn't magical. We're not only to believe. Faith is a gift of God which directs us to trust in the person and work of Christ. And that's what you see here. And what happens is, when such faith is exercised, it receives a blessing from Christ. The desired blessing is given to this one. It's given to the others, of course, but as the Scriptures isolate this one, we focus on Him. Christ blesses this man in mercy. This is instructive for us. When we ask God for mercy, whether it's temporal and little and isolated, or whether it's large and all-encompassing, the temporal isolated might be, Lord, you know, I need a job. Uh, I have to make ends meet for my family. Would you please provide income? And lo and behold, as we're praying, using the means that God has given, He provides us the income needed. That's a temporal mercy. It might be all-encompassing. Lord, I am a sinner. We stand as the one that Christ speaks of in the courtyard of the temple who stood afar off, striking his chest, could not lift up his eyes to heaven. Lord, be propitious to me, the sinner. 
In both of those cases, it's looking to Christ personally. So prayer isn't to this sort of general disposition of uh, kindness, you know what, be gracious, be merciful, show help, and so on. It's not just a cry to heaven, though we can speak in those terms. What we realize, as the scriptures teach and we understand, that the cry to heaven is to the God of heaven. It's to the three-person God. And it's mediated by the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And though we see Him not as these saw Him, yet we by faith realize right now, as surely as you're seated in your seats, Christ is enthroned on the throne of grace. And He is there beckoning us to cry out to Him. You know, Hebrews tells us that we're to come boldly. Literally in the, he- in the Greek, it's to come with many words. We're to come with many petitions, many requests, much prayer to find mercy to help in time of need. So our prayers are not just sort of generalized up into something, some power, some greatness greater than us. It's the person of Christ. And so, brethren, when you receive those mercies, temporal or everlasting, who is it that's giving them to you? It's not the disposition of the heavens. It's not some impersonal force and power. It is the three-personed God by the mediation of Jesus Christ Himself. Think of the picture that's afforded to us in the Old Covenant There is Aaron, the high priest, and on his shoulders, the engraving of the twelve tribes, on his breastplate, the engravings of the twelve tribes, and he's representing the people of God unto God. And then he brings back a blessing and blesses the people of God in the name of God. That's what our high priest does. Christ is the one who receives our petitions, purifies and perfects them by His mediation, presents them unto God, receives blessing, and they're then mediated back to us. That whether temporal or everlasting, they flow from the love of God to us in Christ. It's Christ blessing us in mercy. Every mercy we receive as His people is from Christ. You ate this morning. Doubtlessly, you prayed, Lord, would you bless this food and strengthen my body? Would you give me nourishment? You prepared for worship and you said, Lord, give us safety as, we've travel, as we travel today. You prayed, Lord, give us help through the day. You prayed last week. Some of us were sick and we prayed, Lord, for healing or healing for others. And that was granted. Those blessings come to us personally from Christ. It's not the law of nature. It's not just the way things work out. You know, we can see this in some ways because we better understand the ordinary laws of nature that govern the world as God has given them. So meteorologists will stand up in front of a screen and they'll point out this front's coming through, this front's passing by, this is what the temperatures are going to be generally, this is when the rain's going to come most likely, and In general, many times they're right. Sometimes they're glaringly wrong. But whatever the case, what happens through that is we start to think this is just the pattern of things. Just This is just the way it happens. The same thing happens with sickness. We get sick 
and we take perhaps some Tylenol, our headache is relieved, our fever finally breaks, we get restored and we eat, and countless other people go through the same experience, and we're tempted to think, this is just the way it is. In some sense, it's a general recognition of the way God orders it. But if that's all we think, we're actually missing out on the intimacy of the ruler of all nations who is disposing his kindness to us personally. Every mercy that you've asked for and been granted has not come because that's the way things wash out in the end. It's because the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, reigning over all things, above all things, ordered them unto you. That's what this man recognizes. Notice he doesn't go back to say you're a great prophet, what you've done. Rather, he returns and it says to give glory to God. And as he, with a loud voice, glorified God, it's in process as he's falling down on his face at his feet. This isn't just a common expression. Do you remember when John in the book of Revelation has an angel who is speaking to him? He falls down at his feet and the angel says, no, 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 you're not going to fall at my feet. I'm a servant of God. Give God worship. Do you remember when the apostles are going about and perform a miracle by the power of God and men would worship them? No, no, we're of men of like nature as you worship God. The man is returning to Christ not out of an ordinary gratitude for some kindness shown by a common man, but because his faith is discerning that this is an uncommon mercy given by an uncommon person, even the person of the Son of God. And so as he's giving glory to God with a loud voice, at whose feet has he fallen? He's fallen at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's acknowledging the divinity of Christ. He's giving glory to Him as God and thanking Him. And He's not doing through, do it with a whispered, sort of quiet and something of, you know, a passing glance and just a, a little side note. But he's doing it, notice, with a loud voice, glorifying God and giving him thanks. What's the point? As faith receives the blessing and mercy from Christ, what does faith do? Faith responds in blessing Christ who gave that mercy. This is instructive for us. How many petitions have been granted by Christ and have only found us to be as the nine who went along their way? Something that that tells us is at the least, at the least, our faith is immature and weak. When faith is strong, when faith is vital and vitally exercised, having sought from the personal Savior, Jesus Christ, mercy, and received it from the personal Savior, Jesus Christ, that desired mercy, faith then responds giving glory to the personal Savior, Jesus Christ, for that mercy, whether temporal or everlasting. When the mercy is received, faith notes it and gives thanks and draws near to the person of Christ to give Him thanks personally. Here is something 
that we may use to assess ourselves and the strength of our faith. It is a degree of faith to go to Christ in petition. It is a greater degree and a stronger and a more mature faith to return to Christ with gratitude. We're right to discern that our only hope is in Him. We are wrong to discern that, to ask that, to experience it, and to go on as if Christ has not moved heaven and earth to provide us precisely what was requested, and oftentimes far more. Where prayer is more than a selfish desire in the midst of great distress, gratitude will follow when the mercy is received. Anyone getting shot at will cry out for help. But when that cry goes to God personally, looking to Him for His help, and receives it personally, then that cry will respond with gratitude. Brethren, here's the question. Have you, have I, been much in giving thanks to Christ who has shown us mercy? I imagine that our temptations are very common. We go from one misery to another, and our tendency is to just think upon the repetition of miseries. And we start to number those. And we start to fall into that entrapment of saying, oh, another trial, another affliction, another burden. Woe is me. Woe is me. This is becoming a little bit too burdensome. This is too difficult. My whole life is full of grievous torment. I'm not here to deny that God's people oftentimes have wave after wave ordered upon them. But a question to consider If you've had wave after wave after wave and the Lord has delivered you from that wave and this wave and another wave, shouldn't there be new waves of praise and thanks and gratitude for all of those waves already answered in His mercy? And it's when that starts to happen that then when those ongoing waves of trial come, we already have, as it were, the advantage in the midst of trial. You can see this in the Psalms again and again. We, in fact, sing a portion from Psalm 71. He's crying out to God in the midst of distresses and in the midst of afflictions. And yet he testifies, yet I will hope in God continually and I will not cease to give thanks to His name. Why? Well, because he testifies Your works are beyond what can be numbered. If I think upon all of the mercies you've managed to show to me, and then I multiply that to what you've managed to show to your people, I have ceaseless cause to praise you even if in the midst of a present trial. That's faith at work. That's faith laying hold of the mercy of God in Christ doesn't deny that we pray in the midst of our trials and ask the Lord for His mercies in the midst of our miseries. It only adds that we are sure to give Him thanks who has answered in mercy. Think of it this way. If it's true that we're asking, be merciful to me, show me mercy. And within that, we're acknowledging, I rely upon your compassion. 
I have nothing by which I can say I deserve your help. I demand your help because I've done this, that, and the other thing, so you owe it to me. We come to God in strict terms of mercy and grace and cry out, I have nothing on which to hold but your promise of mercy, your disposition of kindness. It's this which I hold on to, though I am unworthy. We see it in Ezra as we've seen recently. Sin and iniquity have gone up over my head. I am shamed. I am embarrassed. I blush to think of how we've multiplied sin in the light of your mercy shown. My only appeal is God have mercy still upon us. When that truly grips us and faith is sincerely asking for mercy, then when it receives it, it realizes the only reason I receive this is because God in His infinite kindness has been pleased to grant me mercy of His free grace. And when that's captured, we have, as it were, a window through which we can see the immeasurable love of God. You see, what's going on is every mercy received is a concrete testimony of that immeasurable love of God to us in Christ. It's a little package, a little remembrance given to us that there's something greater. This is why we're able to weather future storms. Because the past mercies are testimony of something greater than those concrete and momentary displays. They're testimonies of something far more overwhelming and clear and uh, This is why as you glance into heaven through those little windows of revelation, you see the ceaseless praise to God. Why? Because it's there that they see with the utmost clarity that which they have known by faith, the love of God, which passeth knowledge. So, brethren, let us be sure to draw near to Christ for His mercy, and when that mercy is received, let us be sure to trace it back and to bring ourselves back to give Him thanks for His mercies to us by His grace. Would you stand with me for prayer?